in the book of Romans, chapter number 14. One of my very favorite subjects today, Romans chapter 14, the subject is the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ, a term used a lot, but not often defined and not often really thought through. You'll see phrases, Jesus is Lord, stuck on things around town or on somebody's t-shirt, but I'm not sure that People often think that through and the implications of it. And that's what we want to do today. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought deeply about that phrase? And uh, it's a very biblical term. The Bible uses the phrase or the word Lord 747 times. 747 times the Bible refers to Jesus as Lord. And in the book of Romans, chapter 14, would you please stand with me? I'll begin the reading in verse 7 this morning. Romans 14 and 7. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. And whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. And whether we live, therefore, or die, We are the Lord's. For to this end, or for this purpose, Christ both died and rose and revived, now here it is, that he might be Lord. Lord both of the dead and the living. Now note that verse. That's a powerful verse. For this purpose, Christ came and died, Christmas and he rose, and he revived, and his purpose was that he might be Lord, both of the living and the dead, of everyone who has ever lived, we could say. And why do you judge your brother, or why do you set it not your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, stand before the Lord. As it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And Heavenly Father, will you give us a special blessing today as I preach from this vital, even critical subject. And I pray that you will give me the best attention of every man, woman, boy, and girl in the building today. And that we will not just hear with our ears, but we will hear with our hearts. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. About 100 years B.C., before the Lord Jesus Christ was born, there was born a man named Julius Caesar. He was born into a wealthy family in the Roman Empire. He lived to be about 66 years old. He died in 44 B.C., so about 44 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born. He was a soldier, first of all, and he rose through the ranks till he became the head, the chief general of the Roman armies worldwide. But he was also an intellectual. He was a brilliant, brilliant author Much of what we know about Roman customs and so on, we know through the writings of Julius Caesar. He was one of their most prolific authors. 
He led in some of the most important wars, and he became a hero to his people. The people loved him. And in fact, he was named by the Roman Senate to be dictator for life. Now, they didn't think of a dictator in negative terms, particularly as people do today. They sometimes thought of a dictator as being a a benevolent dictator, a loving and good leader. And so they loved him, and the Senate appointed him dictator for life. And you may remember one of Shakespeare's stories, how he was murdered and assassinated, and he died relatively young then. But he was the first emperor that after his death, posthumously, he was named a deity. They called him a god. And they built a statue of him and put it in the house where they honored their various gods, the statutes of all the other gods. He was added to it. Now, at first, of course, that was rather honorary. Nobody really believed he was truly a god. They knew he was a man. They knew that he had served them. They knew that he had died an, an assassin's death, uh, assassination, the death by assassination. But the honorary thing sort of grew over time, and he became larger in, than life. And then other emperors came along until finally they actually began to believe that they were born as a product of the gods, that they were, in fact, divine beings. And gradually, a civic religion, a civic religion developed in Rome in which they worshiped the emperor. Emperor worship was practiced. Now, it wasn't a religion like you and I think about with Christianity or, or Islam or something like that. Basically, the requirement was this, that whoever was the emperor, that there would always be a statue or a picture of him, an image of him. There would be once a year these ceremonies, and they would go on for a week or a month or whatever, and there would be a little altar erected with fire on it, and every Roman citizen was expected to come and put a pinch of incense on the fire and simply make a statement. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Many of the people did that half-heartedly. They didn't put their heart into that. They didn't really believe that Caesar was God like God in heaven. But it was a civic duty. Over a period of time, it really became a loyalty test. And it became a test of, are you loyal to the Roman Empire? Do you consider yourself to be a a citizen who is subject to the laws and the customs of the empire? Are you one of us? Or are you going to be out here on the margins somewhere operating on your own? And so it was expected of every Roman citizen. But then the Christians began to really grow, and Christianity exploded in the empire. And we're talking about a custom that developed over a couple of centuries, a couple of hundred years. And the Christians became a threat to the emperors because they were so numerous. It was like, there's going to be more of them than there is of us. And the Romans actually began to fear the Christians. And so the loyalty test became very important to the Romans because the Christians and the Jews would not say Caesar is Lord. And for obvious reasons, they the Ten Commandments say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
And so no sincere Jew is going to put his incense on the altar and say Caesar is Lord, meaning that Caesar is above the true God that he worshiped. And no Christian is going to do that. No Christian that's in any ways sincere is going to say that some man is a God. And so this was a way for them to identify, the authorities to identify and keep track with who is for us and who is against us as the Christian numbers began to swell in the empire. And it became such an important thing, a big thing in those days, that, for example, when Christians were baptized, now this is not in the Bible, but I'll show you where there's a little hint of it. When a Christian decided to become a follower, when a person decided to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they would enter into a little river in those days usually and become a, a, a baptized Christian, then they had a confession that in most of the churches they practiced. And so the Christian would walk down into the waters of baptism, and the pastor before baptism would say, will you make the confession? And what is the confession? The person would say, Jesus is Lord. Now imagine the contrast. Imagine what's happening here in this whole culture. Over here, all the Romans are saying, Caesar is Lord. And over here, all the Christians, the very confession of their faith, they walk down into that baptismal font and they say, Jesus is Lord. And after a while, it became something that people were persecuted over. You didn't say Jesus is Lord and go out and live your own life. If you said Jesus was Lord, you better mean it because you might go to jail for it. You might go to the lines ultimately over this. This is a very big thing. Jesus is Lord, the Lordship of Christ. There's a little hint of that. If you'll turn back in your Bible, Romans chapter 10, because Paul's writing to this Roman church, these people right in the heart of this beast, if you will, and he writes to them about salvation. And here's how he says it in 10 and 9, Romans 10 and 9. And that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. If you will confess with your mouth, are you willing to make the confession publicly? Or are you ashamed to call his name and to witness for him? Are you ashamed to be known as a Christian? If you will confess openly with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart sincerely that God hath raised him from the dead, then thou shalt be saved. And so Paul talks about this confession here as he writes to the Roman church. I'll tell you how important this is. I think Adrian Rogers, the great preacher that I so deeply admire, said it best. He said, if I were at the end of my life and I knew I only had three words to say, those three words would be, Jesus is Lord. I can't think of a better three words to say if that's all you had left to say because that says it all. That sums it up, doesn't it? Jesus is Lord. And I want to talk to you on that subject today with the rest of my time, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I hope you will hear me. Because if I only have one message to preach, it might be this one. I don't know for sure. But if I knew that I only have one more message, it might be 
the challenge to our people here that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Lord. Because I believe this is the central message of the New Testament. I believe this is the heart and the soul and the core of Christianity. Jesus is Lord. 747 times in the New Testament it says that. Now, if you'll look back at our text passage, Romans chapter 14, and in verse 9 it says, For this end Christ came to the earth, he died, he rose again, he was revived, he went back up to heaven for this purpose, for this end. This is the whole point of what Jesus did that began here in Christmas. Jesus Christ came to be Lord of this world, Lord of this universe, Lord of every person's heart. This is why he came. Now, you may want to turn very quickly with me back to the book of Acts, chapter number two. Will you turn back there, just the neighboring book, and go back to chapter two? And if you know your Bible, you know that chapter two deals with the day of Pentecost, how Peter stood up on the corner of the street somewhere there in Jerusalem and began to preach, and the crowds gathered. And before the day was over, 3,000 people had come to faith in Christ and had followed the Lord in baptism. And in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 36, it records part of his message. And here was what part of what Peter preached that day, as he looked into the faces of those people who six weeks before had witnessed the death of Christ. And he said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified to be Lord and Christ. How important do you think the Lordship of Christ is? So important that that day, Simon Peter stood and faced that great crowd, not knowing what that crowd was going to do to him, by the way, because they just crucified Jesus. And there was a hatred for Christianity. And this man stands up on that street corner that day, and he said, I want you to know that the Jesus who you crucified is the Lord and Savior. And he preached the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the first message that was ever preached in the Christian era. Now, what does Lord mean then? I want you to understand as an American, as an American, it's a little hard for me to conceptualize a Lord because we don't have Lords in our culture. We are very much every person is equal in America. And so, what is the Lord spoken about right here? Well, the word Lord really means a sovereign king. And since we don't have kings, it's, it's difficult to conceptualize that, isn't it? We don't like the idea of kings and monarchs and people who have total power. But a Lord is one who has total power. He's sovereign. He is absolutely at the pinnacle. He's a king with real power. He is supreme, meaning he is above all. He's more important than all. He has more power than author and authority than anyone and all others put together. And ultimately, it became associated with deity, the word Lord. So it means a God. It means the true God, our God. And so Jesus then 
or, or rather the book of Romans here says that this was Jesus' purpose in coming, that he be Lord, Lord of all. Now, we go to the book of Revelation. Now, I won't turn there. You, we won't take the time for that. But in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 19, if you want to write down a reference, we see the Lord Jesus Christ coming back. And oh, it's going to be glorious. You've heard sermons on that, read about that. Jesus Christ is going to come back to the earth, literally the body that was crucified on the cross that is the Son of God. He's going to return to the earth in glory with the angels and with the saints who've been raptured away seven years before. And the picture's at the end of the tribulation period. And Jesus comes back in all of his glory. And how is he described at that point? At the end of time, he is king of kings and what? Lord of lords. All the other lords who've ever lived, the Caesars and the Charlemagnes and the Napoleons and the presidents and the powerful men and women of the earth, all of them, he is the Lord of all the lords. He has supreme power and supreme authority. That's the picture that we see of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns to the earth. And so what is he doing right now? Is he Lord right now? He absolutely is Lord right now. And you say, well, not everybody acknowledges it. You're right on that because this is a planet in rebellion. If you would think of one of the states of the United States, well, think of South Carolina at the beginning of the Civil War. The state of South Carolina said, we're going to succeed from the Union. We're going to break off and we're going to be our own supreme governing entity. And if you'd think of the planet Earth like that, God made the heavens and the earth. He populated the earth. And here is earth out here among all of the universe. And the people on the earth followed a rebel prince named Satan, who the Bible calls the God of this world. And they have followed him now all these years. And when they did, they shifted their allegiance from their creator God to the God Satan the king of this earth, the prince of evil, the prince of darkness, all the different names of him. And he's in rebellion against God's authority. And so Christ came and he died to pay the sin debt so we could again be reconciled to God. Now listen to me, this is important. To return us to the position that we were before sin ever entered into the world. And through a gradual process of reconciliation and redemption and all those other Bible doctrines we believe. Jesus Christ is preparing this earth, this rebellious planet, and he's going to come back and he's going to take over and he is going to take over the political realms of the world. He's going to remove the curse and he's going to reign on the earth supreme as king of kings and lord of lords throughout all of eternity. And we're in that process right now as his people. We're in that process, that redemptive process in which he's returning the world to what it was originally designed to be. Now go to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Philippians chapter 2, and this is familiar, but I want you to see it because it's connected to Christmas. And in Philippians chapter number 2, and in verse number 
7, it's or verse number 6, it talks about the Lord Jesus. He is in the form of God. This is before he ever, before the earth was ever committed or, or created, pardon me. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. That's Christmas. That's humility. That's being born in that stable that day. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And he paid the penalty that we could be purchased again. And God has highly exalted him, verse 9. He's given him a name which is above every other name in the universe. That at the name of Jesus. Now this hadn't happened yet. But brother, one day it's going to happen. Every knee shall bow. Have things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. The demon spirits themselves. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is supreme. Boy, that's going to be an interesting time. I've always pictured that in my mind, watching Hitler have to say, Jesus, you're Lord. (laughs) To watch every brutal criminal, every dictator, every evil person who cursed at the name of Jesus, all these atheists who rail against his name, we're going to get to see Bill Maher say, Jesus is Lord. People like that that have made their reputation and their living off of trying to destroy the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for the Christian then, what does lordship mean? For you and me today, what does it mean right now at this point in time? It means that everything in my life is to be under his control. So I'm preaching today on consecration. I'm preaching on dedication. I'm teaching today on a level of Christianity that maybe, I don't know if one in ten people in America that profess to be Christians even think about. But I believe statistics will bear me out. I'm talking about a level of Christianity, and I say it to you lovingly that many of us here, we're not that level. We're not even thinking about that. And so I challenge you lovingly to say, is Jesus really Lord in your life, or is that just an empty phrase? Is he Lord of your life? Because lordship means he's supreme in my life personally. It means that everything in my life is be, my life is being lived to please him. Can that be said, my friend? That means he's the Lord of my speech. And so I'm not going to let words come out of my mouth that I know hurt him or reflect on his testimony in a bad way. I'm not going to use filthy language. Let all filthy language cease, the Bible says. I'm not going to use his name profanely and lightly. And He's the Lord of my speech if he's the Lord of my life. He's the Lord of my relationships. Am I going to treat you like he said to treat you? 
to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You see, that's a result of the lordship of Christ. And in our world that emphasizes freedom of expression in a hypered sense, in a world where people today think, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care how it affects anybody. Those of us who believe in the lordship of Christ say, wait a minute. I must treat you like I want you to treat me because that's what the master, the supreme, the king said to do. He's the Lord of my money. He's the Lord of my money. By the way, not 10% of my money, all of my money. He's not just interested in me giving him a tithe and then walking away and doing anything I want with the rest. No, he's the Lord of my possessions, everything. He's the Lord of my time. And so, no, he doesn't want me to come to church for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, walk out the door and live the rest of my life any way I want. He's the Lord of my, he is the Lord of time. So all of my time belongs to him, not worship time in a church service somewhere. No. Lordship, everything. Lord of my thoughts. Second Corinthians chapter 10 says, we're to be working on bringing every thought into captivity. Think about that. Bringing every thought into captivity. And so I see some seductive picture somewhere. I've got to say, I can't think about that. I've got to turn my head. Because my thoughts must be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Thoughts of anger and hatred, I've got, to, I've got to deal with those and confess those, and we all have them, and we all have them every day. The lordship of Christ says that we do something about it. We don't just say, this is the way I am. We don't say, this is the way everybody else is. No, everybody's not like that, the, not the people who sincerely practice the lordship of Christ. He's the Lord of my emotions. I don't just get to explode. I want to explode. I think about exploding. I dream about exploding. But I can't explode because he's the Lord. He doesn't want me to explode. No way. No, never, never, never. Lordship is more. Listen to me, Baptist Temple Lights. Hear me. I speak to you from the deepest part of my heart. I've never been more sincere. Some of us think that being good Christians and acknowledging Christ as Lord verbally, it just means coming to church regularly and maybe having a devotion in the morning out of our Bible. Oh, no. That just is the food to fuel that lifestyle. But the Lordship of Christ says, Jesus is Lord. And let me tell you, it's the only way Christianity works. It's the only way that Christianity works. You know why Christianity isn't working for many, many, a high percentage of Christians? Because they want to please self over here with this foot, and they want to put this other foot over here on the Lord and it's kind of like the guy in the circus who rides two horses. And they want one foot right in the middle of the world, and they want the other foot in, in, in their Christian faith. And they're trying to ride two horses, and their horses are going different ways. 
<laughs> and you're going to fall off when that happens. Because Jesus is not going the same way this world is going this morning. And the Lordship of Christ says, you get your foot out of the world and you put it all over here on Jesus. And Jesus is supreme to you. You don't need the rest of this. A few years ago, I was trying to explain this to someone. They were talking to me and their life was so messed up. And I said, listen, it's real simple. It's not as hard to get your life straightened as you think. It's just a matter. You've got to make the Lord Jesus Christ Lord. And I explained what Lordship means. You know what the person said to me? And they're a good person. They said, Pastor, that scares me to death. That scares me to death. That kind of submission to anybody else, the very thought of that scares me to death. I don't believe I can do that, Pastor. And I said, what scares you? Giving control of myself like that to anybody. And I thought a few moments, and then I said to them these words, listen, do you imagine you can operate your life better than he can operate your life? Do you really think that you can have a more successful life not acknowledging him than you can if you follow his direction in your life? What do you think he's going to do? Take all your goods and property from you, put you in a pair of tennis shoes and send you to Africa as a missionary with no support? No, he's not going to do that. He loves you. He wants the best for you. I can tell you the life that you dream about is the life that's lived under the Lordship of Christ if you're a Christian today. He wants the best for you. What does it mean then? Let me break down the factors in Lordship. First of all, that we recognize his ownership. That we recognize that he is the owner. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Would you turn there with me quickly, please? And I'm running a little behind, so I've got to pick it up here. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. And, and what a powerful, powerful concept. We usually talk about this in stewardship, but it really is deeper than stewardship. It recognizes him as Lord for this reason. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? And notice this last phrase. Christian, you are not your own. Now, underline that in your Bible. You are not your own. Why? Because you have been bought, verse 20, with a price. And what is the price? It's the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He purchased me through his redemption on the cross. He gave himself for my sins. And today I'm a purchased possession. I belong to him. I was bought with his blood. What a thought. God's son gave his blood for me. And if he did, Paul says, you're not your own. But it doesn't even stop there. It goes further because then Jesus rose from the dead that he might be Lord. And so he sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit lives within me today. And not only did he purchase me, but he lives within me and indwells me with his Holy Spirit. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit is his seal upon me. 
Ephesians chapter 1. And like the old king in the ancient days, would, he would write a letter, and he wanted it to be confidential. So he would put a little blob of sealing wax on it, and he would stick his, while it was still warm and soft, he would stick his signet ring down in it, and it marked this as property of the king. Nobody could touch that letter without fear of losing their head. And the letter would be delivered, and if the seal was intact, it meant that no one had seen his correspondence. And God said, now I've got a mark I'm going to put upon you, and it's my Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to come in when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, and he is going to be my mark upon you. And if you have the Holy Spirit today, that's God's mark of ownership upon you. He owns you. He purchased you with the blood of Christ. Now, here's the question of lordship. Do I recognize Jesus Christ as the owner of my body and my family and my possessions and anything and everything that I have? And that's why the person said to me, Pastor, that scares me to death. Oh, it would scare me to give over control of my life to anybody. I couldn't do that. I tend to be pretty independent. But there's one I'll give it to because he suffered and died on the cross for me. And he has purchased me with his very life's blood. And he gives me his Holy Spirit who lives within me and marks me as his child. Number one, lordship has three factors. Recognize his ownership. Number two, submit to his lordship. Surrender to his lordship. I learned that concept long ago from Joseph Tan when he was here and then later I read it in his books. He said, you know what? We have too many Christians talking about making commitments. Now listen to me. You got you to think with me or I'll lose you here. When you are committed to something, you're still in control. If you're committed, you say, I'm going to commit myself to 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 the Lord's work, but I'm in control of that. I'm going to commit myself to my wife and my family, but I'm in control. But a better word is when we're talking about the Lordship of Christ is we don't commit because that means we still control. We surrender. Now, if a robber broke into my house and put a 38 up against my head and said, give me your wallet, I'm not going to make a commitment of my wallet. I'm going to surrender my wallet. Here, take it. You got it. You want anything else? You can have it all. Just leave. If a robber put a gun to my head, I wouldn't make a commitment of my wallet. I'd make a surrender of my wallet, wouldn't I? Now, I don't want to compare the Lord to the robber, (laughs) but here's the thing. Jesus Christ has purchased your whole soul and everything. You are a Christian. And he didn't ask you to make a commitment which you can change. He asked you to make a surrender and give it all to him. Now, That ups the ante. That's powerful, isn't it? When I was a little boy, I'd go hear preachers preach, and I still hear preachers say this. Now, come and accept Jesus as your Savior, and then some of you have already accepted him as your Savior. I want you to make him your Lord. 
I know what they meant, and that's exactly what I did. When I was a little boy and received Christ, I just heard that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and if I received him, I would be saved. And he did do that. And many of you did that. I didn't understand the theological implications of the Lordship of Christ and all that. Nobody was talking like I'm talking this morning. But later, I understood those. And when I understood those, I had to make a decision. Is Christ, am I going to disobey Christ the rest of my life? Or am I going to submit to his lordship in my life? The preachers would say, come and make Christ Lord. Look up here at me. Let me tell you something. You don't make Christ Lord. He's Lord whether you make him or not. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. It's not a decision on your part whether he's Lord or not. He is Lord. The issue is, will you submit to his lordship? Or will you live your life saying, you know what? I want to use Jesus for a fire escape. I sure don't want to go to hell. But after that, I want him to leave me alone so I can live my life the way I want. And when I get about 98, I'm going to take a bath, put on my pajamas, lay down in my clean bed. I'm going to kiss all my loved ones goodbye, and I'm going to go on out of here. But until then... I'm going to live the way I want to live. No, no, no. That brings into real question the sincerity of the decision you ever made. Because you can't divide Jesus up into two pieces. I'll have him as Savior, but I don't want him as Lord. He is the Lord. None of us will ever be perfect, but we can be sincere. So the last thing lordship involves is unquestioned obedience. In Luke 6, Jesus said to an audience of people much like mine, I'm sure, he said, why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I say? Why would you call me supreme Lord without any intention of obeying me? He said to Peter one time, said, Peter, I'm going to do this. And Peter said, no, Lord, wait a minute. <laughs> Those two words don't belong in the same sentence. He can't be Lord and you say no. No, Lord, Peter said, and the Lord rebuked him for that. I don't give my testimony like this very often, but I, I will say this to make my point. There came a time in my life when I had to make a decision. Am I going to live my life doing pretty well what I want to do, just being a moral good guy, or am I going to submit myself to the Lordship of Christ? And I never will forget, I came to this point in my thinking. It's very clear to me when I did this. I finally decided, if I can see it in the Scripture, I'll do it. If I can see it in the Bible, then I'll do it. And I haven't been perfect on that. But I haven't backed up on that. And that is my heart's desire. If I can see it in the Bible, I'll do it. And when the Lordship of Christ is a settled fact in our life, my last point to you, now listen to me. When the Lordship of Christ becomes a settled issue for you, every other issue is already solved. It's settled. There's really only one issue for a Christian. Who's going to be the boss? 
I sent my sermon notes, as I always do, over from my house. I try to study at home. I can't get a lot done here. Too many distractions. So I'm studying, and it's uh, Friday morning. And I send my sermon email, or I email the sermon notes over to Jane, my assistant. And in a few minutes, an email came back from Jane, and she said, I'm assuming this is a stewardship message because she thought you didn't mention money or time or anything like that much in this sermon. And we're in the middle of stewardship month, preacher. Are you sure you're preaching on stewardship? Or did you inadvertently maybe email me the wrong message? No, Jane, I sent you the right message. Because when we settle the stewardship issue, the stewardship issue is already settled. I don't have to talk to you about your money if Jesus is Lord. I don't have to talk to you about service if Jesus is Lord. I don't have to get up and beg people to serve God and meet a need if Jesus is Lord. You see, Lordship takes care of every issue. The giving issue, the service issue, the witnessing issue. I don't have to pound on people to witness if Jesus is Lord or lifestyle issues. No. If Jesus is Lord, all that's taken care of. One big decision. Lord Nelson was the British admiral. He was a hero. Boy, the people of England. In fact, today you can see Lord Nelson's statute in a downtown square in uh, London, one of the most prominent statutes in the country. He was the Lord Admiral of the High Seas, they called him, of the British Empire. And he defeated another navy one time in a great conflict. And they anchored the ship of the opponent, the opposing navy, and Lord Nelson's ship. And they anchored them together in the harbor there somewhere off of Europe. And they sent a little rowboat over from Lord Nelson's ship to the other ship. And the other officer, I forget what he was, a high-ranking officer of the country that had been defeated in the battle. They put him in the little rowboat and brought him back over, and he got on the board the ship with Lord Nelson. Lord Nelson was waiting for him, sitting at a table on the deck of the British uh, ship. And up the ladder comes the opposing officer from the other navy, and he comes striding across real haughty, standing tall. He's got on his dress uniform and his feathers and plume, all those fancy uniforms they wore in those days. And he puts out his hand to Lord Nelson to shake his hand. Well, they're there for terms of truce. And Lord Nelson straightened and he said to that other officer, your sword first and then your hand. Surrender. Pull that sword out of its scabbard and turn around backwards and hand it to me and surrender. And then I'll shake your hand. What a great parallel to what I'm talking about this morning. The Lordship of Christ. First, surrender. And then that wonderful fellowship and relationship that can only happen when Jesus is Lord. Would you stand to your feet with me, please, and bow your heads.